We've been um, going through this uh, uh, kind of outline about what it takes to have a kingdom uh, that I just kind of pulled from an encyclopedia website. It's been kind of fun. Um, we've covered the need to have a monarch, um, a space with borders, and uh, a people or a population, subjects of the kingdom. Um, and this week we're actually going to... Um, uh, getting into the fact that every kingdom needs rules and regulations. That's what we're actually talking about together. No matter how lawless um, a, uh, we tend to think a kingdom is or was, used to be even like the old barbarians that, you know, they lived on on raiding and pillaging other places. You know, they still had rules within their things on how you were allowed to to do things. There's never been a kingdom that didn't have um, rules and laws to kind of uh, manage the behavior of its subjects. And so as I was thinking on this concept this week, um, I recalled a true moment of brilliance um, that I had in my marriage years ago. Uh, and the reason this jumped out at me was because this was my attempt to kind of secure my marital kingdom through the establishment of rules and regulations. Um, you can already see where this is going. So let me give you some background. Um, I had noticed a pattern that had sprung up in my relationship with my beloved wife, whom I adore and who loves me and who gave me permission to tell this story. Um, and here's the pattern. I would ask to do something. Um, let's say go play basketball with my buddies. And I would uh, make it quite clear that I would really, really like to go play basketball with my friends. But also I would make it clear that if she would rather I not experience healthy camaraderie and exercise and building good heart health, then I would stay home with her as well. Um, and, and now let me, let me say, after this point, I, I feel like I was being mature and responsible. Um, and then Esther, clearly recognizing and dare I say submitting to my sensible request, would give me permission to go and play with my friends and enjoy a, an evening of good-natured fun with my Christian buddies while iron sharpened iron on the basketball court. Uh, and so I was spending the evening running up and down the court with a clear conscience, bathing in my own sweat and the love of and support of my Proverbs 31 wife that I'd married. And this is where things got tricky because I would come home after a long evening of basketball and I'd walk in like the conquering hero after many victories and, and well-played games and Esther would be upset with me. Which, uh, uh, and believe it or not, um, when I would recognize her emotional disposition and discern with the help of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that it was my absence for the evening that had caused her distemper, I, uh, I would do what any Christ-loving husband would do in my shoes. I would remind her that she gave me permission to go play with my friends. And believe it or not, that didn't help. And, uh, and... And so here's the thing about me. I'm actually a very quick learner. I pick things up very fast. So after the 30th or 40th or 50th time this happened, I started to recognize the pattern. And, uh, and I decided that we needed to overcome this unfortunate situation with some rules. And I make this sound like a parody, but God is my witness. I did this. Um, I sat Esther down. I explained to her the pattern that I'd noticed and, uh, because I was quite sure that she was oblivious to it. And, uh, and I honestly held out hope that... Uh, simply by pointing out the pattern, it might fix her. Um, but that's not what happened. Uh, so, so what I did was I explained as rationally as I could that this was no way to live. Um, I told her that we needed to be open and honest in our marriage. Um, my plan from this point on was to tell her openly and honestly what I wanted to do on any given evening. And it was her job to be just as open and honest with whether or not she approved of that activity. And if she did not approve, it was her job to say so. 
so if I wanted to play basketball and, and she'd rather I didn't, she had to tell me. And then, if I chose to play anyway, she had every right to be angry with me. But if she, uh, but if I wanted to play and she said it was okay with her, I was going to take her at her word. And I was going to play and, and she had no right to get upset with me. Uh, because she said it was okay. So from this conversation forward, I said, we are moving forward, and this is how we're going to do it. Honest answers. You have to be honest with me, and we'll make decisions based on that honesty, and there's no reason either one of us should ever get upset with the other ever again. I had solved marriage. Crushed it. And, uh, and I actually did give that speech to her, believe it or not. And, uh, and, um, and that's why you shouldn't get married when you're 19. Um, <laughs> It didn't work. Um, but I have gotten much better, I think, at being a husband in the past 30 years. At least I hope so. I still have a long way to go, but I'm getting there. And we will actually circle back to that later. But we're talking about rules and regulations in the kingdom this week. Uh, anybody else having fun with this series? I'm like, I'm having a blast, but I like to hear my own voice, so that's kind of biased. Um, so far, uh, I think the most surprising thing about this series to me has been the fact that um, every time I'm, I think I know where I'm going in a week, where I know what I want to talk about this week, I dive into the study and I feel like the Holy Spirit uh, just takes me in a totally different direction. So all I can, I can assume is that you guys are all messed up and the Holy Spirit wants me to straighten y'all out. But um, no, I'm kidding. But our our culture is pretty messed up, and uh, and and I, I think when we study kingdom, uh, which I'm pretty sure we're going to wind up doing all summer. Because I don't see any end to this. But I think it's imperative that we talk about um, where our kingdom clashes with the culture's kingdom. Uh, especially in our context where it's so easy for us to think that God's kingdom is also America's kingdom. Or God's kingdom is also our political party's kingdom. Or God's kingdom is the modern church's kingdom. Uh, so I think it's impossible to talk about the kingdom of God without drawing some lines in the sand and saying, Oh yeah, and that ain't it. Um, and, and making sure we know where those lines are. So I've been a little more preachy uh, than usual in this series. Um, and so I guess if you're struggling with that, maybe come back and give us a shot in the fall. You know, I should have it out of my system by then. Um, but, uh, but we're going this morning to a mountain um, that we'll no doubt return to in a couple weeks because this is the first Pentecost. Um, and actually in a couple weeks uh, is Pentecost, so I'm sure we'll be talking about this mountain again. But the word Pentecost just means 50th. And, uh, and so the, way back when the ancient Israelites were delivered from slavery in Egypt, the first Passover, the next morning they were delivered. 50 days later, or what they would have called the Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover, um, God had them gather around a mountain so he could pour out his spirit upon them. Uh, and incidentally, Jesus was arrested on Passover, and then 50 days later, the Pentecost, later, um, God once again poured out his presence on his people um, in an upper room. So we'll be revisiting this in a couple of weeks on the day of Pentecost. But today I want to talk about the purpose of that very first Pentecost. Because this was the day that God gathered his people around a mountain to give them his law, his rules and regulations. Uh, and every kingdom needs Laws. So I'll be reading out of Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3. Oh, fam, you can hit the link in the bulletin if you want. Um, uh, or you can just read in your own Bible or app or just let me read the text, whichever you're most comfortable with. Uh, but this is how it reads. Then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, Give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, you will, if you will obey me, <laughs> you will obey me. That's what I say to my kids. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the peoples of the earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give the people of Israel. So Moses returned from the mountain and called together all the elders of the people and told them everything the Lord had commanded him. And all the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. This is a little weird, uh, like circling back to this, because we just did like a whole series on the Ten Commandments just before Lent. Uh, but I especially love this piece of this passage, because it, it can tend to hit our ears a little weird, if we're honest with it. Um, coming from a New Testament context, we tend to think of the law as this thing that Israel could never keep. Like this heavy weight and burden, this standard that was so high um, that it necessitated the coming of Jesus to do what the law couldn't do, man, oh fam, I wish you could hear the thunder here, this is awesome, hopefully you can hear it where you are, um, because people were so sinful um, that, that they failed the law over and over again, so we tend to see the law as this huge burden that Jesus freed us from, um, all of which is 100% true, uh, but it sounds kind of funny to hear us, uh, to hear the Israelites so enthusiastically and maybe naively uh, jumping into this covenant with God that depended on them keeping all of his rules and commands. And they were like excited about it. And we read some of those things and we're like, who could do this? You know, but the Israelites were like, yes, this is awesome. This is what we want. Uh, they said, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. And so we talked about uh, in our Ten Commandments remix series about why they were so excited about God's law. Um, and it's because every religious system of that day featured very demanding gods. Um, they required sacrifice and they met out extreme retribution if they were angered. The only problem was no one had any idea what the gods wanted. That's kind of the flaw of serving a made-up God, is you have no idea what they want. And so uh, so all you knew is that when things went bad, the, the gods must be angry, and you had to make sacrifices to them, hoping to get them back on your good side. And so, uh, uh, so in comes Yahweh. It was a horrible system they lived in. And in comes Yahweh with this self-revealing law where he told his people exactly what they needed to do to please him and exactly how to make sacrifices if they messed up. And they saw it as this huge liberating grace. No longer are we just kind of blankly trying to please the arbitrary gods. We now know what God wants and how to please him. And so they saw it as grace. And we talked in our Ten Commandments series about how the law was made to protect God's people. God didn't tell them not to covet because coveting would hurt others or because it would uh, hinder the success of society like murder and, and theft would. Coveting only hurts you, the one who covets. And so God gave them this law to protect their own souls and their own hearts. He didn't tell them to honor father and mother because mom and dad deserve it. He said, do this because it's, you need to have a humble heart that turns to the people who want what's best for you and who have been around the block a few more times than you. And this humility to honor them, and, and this is the one that comes with promise, that you may live long in the land I'm giving you. Like If you will be humble enough to listen to the advice of some older people, you might live long in the land. It was, it was, a, it was a command given for the protection of God's people. So, so the law was originally given as a blessing. Right? It was given to set this like standard for God's people for their good. In my house, you know, we have some standards. If I were to walk into the kitchen and Asher's eating out of the garbage, I would stop him. 
our like we have higher standards than that. <laughs> you know? I mean we'll do the five second rule on a chicken nugget. We're not that bougie. But we will but we <laughs> But the trash, like our standards are a little higher than the than the trash, right? And it's not because I don't want Isaac to, you know, or Asher to, to have what he wants, because I don't want him to get sick. I worry about him. So I set these standards so that for our good. And and incidentally, can you can you imagine God like looking down on us with standards while we sit on our phones and look at every news thing that comes through and everything in our feed just Eating out of the trash, and he just, okay, got quiet. Too early to start preaching, apparently. Okay, sorry, old fam. Um, <laughs> suffice it to say, the law was beautiful and good, and it set a standard for God's people, and, and, and some of the people got it. Psalms 119, which is this beautiful piece of poetry where each stanza starts with the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's this well-written, well-structured, long, um, beautiful poem. And the author diligently lays out this ode to God's law that reveals kind of the same optimism that the Jews had at Mount Sinai. He says, oh, how beautiful your instructions. We're not going to read the whole psalm. This is, you know, you guys know 119. It's crazy. Um, oh, how beautiful. I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies. Um, they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I all, I'm always thinking about your love. I'm even wiser than the elders, for I kept your command. This kind of jumped out of me this week. You know, we have this tendency, our world right now is full of, sorry in the back, none of this is in my notes. Our world is full of um, experts, right? We have experts telling us how to raise our kids. We have experts telling us what we should put in our bodies. We have experts telling us how we should eat. We have experts, and I love that the psalmist was like, I'm wiser than the experts because I follow your word. Like sometimes when there's a million experts, we just got to go back to the word and go, what is the, what does God tell me? Okay, I'm going to move on. Um, I could do that all day. I refuse to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, um, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. So we tend to read Psalms 119 as though it applies to the whole scripture, and I think it does now. But when this was written, there wasn't much scripture. It was basically the law. It was basically the Torah. And so this psalm writer was like writing about all this beauty about the rules. Like these rules are good for me. Um, they're like sweet honey in my mouth. So the, the author of this psalm is passionately writing about how much they love the law, the rules and regulations. But one of the things we're going to talk about this morning as we discuss the rules and regulations of living in a kingdom is the way that even blessings, even good things can become bondage. Even blessings can, can, can get in our way. And so, um, buckle in a little bit because as you can tell, I'm feeling preachy. I'm coming after you this morning. Um, but we know the story, the law that Israel so passionately and, and, and excitedly accepted with such gratitude, the same law that the psalmist compares to honey and a guiding light, this law that gave out so much protection and identity, kind of goes sour, right? We see that in the New Testament. Uh, listen, we're going to look at an example of this. I'm reading in Luke 6, if you want to follow along. Um, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, no disciples, or his disciples, broke off the heads of grain and rubbed the husks in their hands and ate the grain. But some Pharisees said, why are you breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? 
Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures, what David did when when his companions were hungry? He went in the house of God and broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests can eat. He also gave some to his companions. uh, And Jesus added, uh, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. So let's sum up what's happening here. Jesus is, is walking with his disciples. Seems kind of leisurely. And while they're walking, the disciples pick some, uh, some grain. Uh, and then Luke adds this little detail that's actually real, really important if you're a Jew. It says he rubs them in their hands. Um, in the Talmud, to a Jew, um, this is huge because the Talmud says you can pick grain on the Sabbath. You just can't uh, harvest it. And so you can't, because the, the Torah said you can't harvest grain. And so there was a big debate amongst the rabbis, is, is picking harvesting, or because grain, you have to pick it, and then you have to thrash it to get the seed out, because that's what you grind up to make the wheat and stuff. And so they determined, the rabbis determined, it's okay to pick it, just not to, to harvest it, to thrash it. And so it's, not, it's actually not sin. They can pick the grain as they walk through. They're just not allowed to rub it in their hands and get the seeds out. Which brings up a question. So they're they're just walking, and then and 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 it's when they start doing this to to pick out something to nibble on that the the Pharisees jump in. But how sick do you have to be to follow someone close enough and watch someone close enough that you catch the point at which they start doing this? Right? I mean, we're talking about these on the Sabbath, this day that God created to rest and chill. And these guys are following the disciples close enough, like they're intent enough to catch them in that little point where they, like, who's really jacked up in this story? Is it the guys who are, as they're walking and chatting, you know, nibbling on a snack? Or is it the people who are spending their entire Sabbath day trying to catch someone else being stupid and screwing up? Except, hold on, hold on, hold on, because we all just got judgy and I felt it happen. How many times do we sit there with our phone going, oh my God, she's a mess. Look at that. Oh my Lord, is that what she's wearing? I don't know where the voice came from. Like, oh, he's, he's wasting his life. Look at, oh my God, I can't believe it. I'm going to comment on this. Like, hello? Do we do the same thing? Like, we sit there, I'm like, like, oh, he's wasting his life. Hello, you see that? He's wasting his life. Yeah, same thing. Sometimes when we're at our judgiest, it's while we're doing something completely stupid as well. But that uh, total hypocrisy is not what we're here for. Um, this group of Pharisees is, has taken this blessing, this amazing gift, this beautiful freedom called the Sabbath, and they've made it a bondage, haven't they? They've, they've, they've turned it into to chains. And can, and can you imagine being the first Israelites who heard about the Sabbath command? This is a generation of slaves who knew no rest. Their lives were forced labor every single day. And can you imagine God coming along and going, I want you to take one day and do nothing. Can you imagine how crazy that would have sounded to a generation of slaves to, to have God come and say, one of your commands, one of the things I'm forcing you to do is to sit down and put your feet up. For a minute. I mean, I, incidentally, some of the laws, not in my notes again, I'm feeling the obligation to let the people know I'm back there that I'm way off. One of the, one of the things I always cracked up about is there's rules on menstruating women. Yeah, we're going to talk about that today. Where, you know, they were like, she's unclean for this week and must sit in her room and, and do nothing. 
And I'm like, man, you know, and, and I've known women that were like, that's ridiculous that he would call him unclean just because she's having a cycle. It's natural. I'm like, yeah. And the, the consequences was you get to sit in your room with your feet up and a book for a whole week. And God was like, hey, you're unclean. You get to take a week off. Like, is that a bad thing? <laughs> like, like, how many women, come on, how many of you wouldn't mind one week a month being able to sit and read a book and take some time off, right? Yeah, so... <laughs> I have no idea where I'm at. Um, Back to Luke's story. It gets worse. Because these Pharisees attacking Jesus' disciples for rubbing grain um, in their hand. The very next story Luke tells us, and it's about another Sabbath. Luke's obviously on a Sabbath kick here. They're at the temple, and there's a man there with a with a withered hand. And Jesus walks in, and he, and he can tell he's being washed. And so he starts to ask some provocative questions like, Hey, is it good to do evil or do good on the Sabbath? You know, just generically, asking for a friend. You know, one of those things. Is it good to do evil? or? And, uh, and the Pharisees got upset because Jesus healed this guy's hand. Like, they would literally rather this guy, who ironically can't work because he's handicapped, you know, on the day that's made for not work, um, for him to, to not be healed. They would rather him not be healed um, because this beautiful gift that had been given him had become a bondage. This blessing had become bondage. And this happens all the time. We, we deal with this all the time. I don't know why I'm coming after everybody's phones today. But I love the Bible app. Right? You have like every translation of the Bible on a thing. You've got, you got um, reading plans, devotionals, audio Bibles. And it all fits right in your pocket and goes with you everywhere. It's an amazing gift. We have this, it's an amazing gift. I love that we have access to the best worship on the planet right on our phone. You can kick on worship music anytime, anywhere. I love that the OFAM is out there right now joining us because of this amazing technology that we have. I love that we can, I've got truckers that have come to our church, four of them that I, I'm in touch with every single week and they send me prayer requests and I send them prayer requests and they're awesome. We do it over a phone. It's an amazing gift, an amazing blessing. And yet, despite all these benefits, and please know that I'm a hypocrite right now, despite all these benefits, for most of us that blessing has become a bondage. It's something that takes up our time. It's something that, that, that pulls all of our attention. We try to have connection to everywhere in the world all at once. And we try to know, and we know every headline. You know, it used to be you only had to deal with the stress of the news, like at 10 o'clock at night. And then you'd be like, oh, I don't know why I even watch that. I, you know, but you had this like little, now it's all day long. The stress of what's going on in the world is constantly beating us up. It's become a bondage. I write my sermons in the middle of the night now. I pull an all-nighter once a week because I'm, if I my phone dings and chirps too much during the day, like when I'm when I'm writing, I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to hear what God wants me to say, I'm trying to to study and follow what the Holy Spirit does. And so if a chirp comes in, like I'm out of it, like for 30 minutes, I can't get back into the into the groove. And so everybody's like, "Well, turn your phone off." Except. The second I turn my phone off, I'm trying to. I'm sitting there thinking, man, what if someone's trying to reach me? What if someone's life's falling apart and they need prayer? What if my kid's got in a wreck? What well, you know? I, it takes more of my attention when the stupid phone is off than it does when it's on. And so the only way I have come up with to fix it is to write in the middle of the night when my phone is on. I can receive any notification out there, and it's not making any noise. And then tell me that's not a bondage. This amazing blessing I have, you know, that allows me to access so many people and so many wonderful things now controls my life. And I have to, to work around it. 
How many of you ever, if I offered you like an amazing car with a great price, I was like, it just doesn't have any air conditioning. would be like, eh, oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, you, you have this amazing gift that's given us. We can all drive around in comfortable temperature, but, but it, it now dictates whether or not you get a deal and whether or not you save money. Blessings can become bondage. Who's got kids? No, we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. So it's not too shocking that this law that was so beautiful and life-giving had grown to be the very thing weighing them down. And Jesus steps in and says, you've got it all backwards. You were never supposed to become slaves to this stuff. It was supposed to serve you. So let's look at one more. Are you guys ready for this? This is going to mess with you. We're going to go to, to, to John 9 and uh, chapter 8 if you want to follow along. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We've never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean? What do you mean we'll be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. The slave is not a permanent member of the family, but the son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. Yes, I realize you're descendants of Abraham, and yet some of you are trying to kill me because there's no room in your hearts for my message. <clears throat> I'm telling you uh, what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your father. Our father is Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus replied. For if you were really children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you're imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our father. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. But uh, why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't, uh, you can't even hear me, for you are children of your father, the devil. That's like, that's boo, yeah. Uh, and, and you love to do evil, the evil things that he does. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he always hated the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he lies, it is uh, consistent with his character, um, for he is a liar and a father of lies. I heard one uh, language commentator said that statement, you are children of the devil. If we were to put that in like English, the, the, the way that's worded, if we were to put that in English, it would be your mom shagged the devil. Like, like yeah, that's like low blow, man. Um, but this is such a powerful conversation, especially for our topic this morning, because uh, this is absolutely about bondage, right? He even comes right out and says it. You're slaves. You know, when we're talking about, he says, if I tell you the truth, or for we will know the truth, the truth will set you free. But we're descendants of Abraham. We've never been slaves to anything, right? And Jesus is talking about being set free from bondages by faith in Jesus. You ever talk, you ever heard that verse, you know, or you ever talk to somebody who won't, who like these people won't admit they're bound? I could quit if I wanted to. You ever, anybody ever heard that? You know, like, I'm not really addicted, I just need a little more balance in my life. Right? I'm, that's what I'm wrestling with with my phone right now. I took all my, like, uh, social media apps and games and even news readers and basically any general time waster, I took them off my phone for Lent. And it felt kind of good. Like, I'm, I'm, uh, I haven't put them back on yet, and I'm trying to leave them off. I'm even like, 
praying about going to like an old flip phone. Like, man, if I could find an old brick phone, I'm, I'm not there yet. Like, pray for me because I feel the urge, but I'm like, oh, my God, what if I, you know, I can feel like that bonded. I'm not addicted. I just need more balance, you know. Yeah, I'm struggling with this. It's hard. But Jesus says in, in John 8 that you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But I kind of want to take a little closer look at that. Because there's something we often miss. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We quote this verse all the time, right? How many of you have ever heard this verse quoted? Like, a lot. Like, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, the truth will set you free. We say this one all the time. But there's one little word we never quote. And. This is actually the, the, a little Greek word, kahi. Kahi, I think is how you say it. It's a special conjunction in the Greek, because it... The way the, lex- uh, the lexicon says that it, it's not only copulative, it's cumulative in the Greek language. In other words, uh, a better translation would be the word then. Because this type of conjunction not only ties two things together, but makes one dependent on the other. And so a better translation is then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. This is actually the way the NIV translates it. If you read the NIV, the, translate, the NIV translates this then. And so we quote this all the time, right? You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But if, if, this, if there's a then in front of it, joining this verse to something that it's dependent upon, then it's kind of important to know what that's dependent upon, right? That, that makes this verse change. It says, if you are truly my disciples, or you are, you are truly my disciples if you remain in my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That changes that verse a little bit. In mathematics, logic, and philosophy, we call this a conditional statement. Meaning the outcome, knowing the truth and the truth setting you free, only happens if and only if the condition is met. So we will know the truth and the truth will set us free only if we remain faithful to Jesus' teachings. Got real quiet. Since I was already doing some Greek work, I went ahead and looked up what it means to remain faithful. And this is a big one. It means to remain faithful. (laughs) So Jesus is having this conversation about bondage and freedom. And his audience is really having a hard time accepting the fact that they're enslaved at all. And in all honesty, um, it can just start to sound like another one of Jesus' conversations with with the Pharisees, right? With the religious leaders. We, we read them all the time. So similar to the one over the grain being ground in the apostles' hands or the, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. It sounds like every other conversation we hear Jesus have. Except there's one huge difference. You guys ready for me to blow your minds? You ready to like freak out? Does anybody know who Jesus is talking to in this passage? It says, Jesus said to the people... Who believed in him. You are truly my disciples if and only if. And then the whole rest of the conversation. You're sons of the devil. You're blah, blah, blah. This whole conversation starts with Jesus said to the people who believe in him. This is not a conversation with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Yeah, that's the right face. <laughs> Does anybody have any idea that that's who Jesus is talking to here? See, in the story about the Sabbath, we, we kind of uh, determine, we imply that, that Jesus is taught that, the, that the, the blessings had become bondage because, because we, we pick it up from the story 
These people who were given a blessing of Sabbath decided to, to, to make a bondage out of it. We can see the bondage, and so we call this out. But here in John 8, he's talking directly about their bondage. And they don't like it, and it's not Pharisees. These are people who believe in him. Which begs the question, can we be guilty of the same things the Pharisees do? Actually, let me ask that even in a more painful way. If we know the Pharisees were in bondage to the law, and so much of what Jesus said to them, and basically everything Paul taught, says they were. I wish I had time to read, because Paul basically almost uses those exact same words. But we know the blessing of the law had become a bondage to them. But the question we need to wrestle with from John 8 is, if, if the law can become bondage, can grace become bondage as well? Like the Jews took this beautiful gift of Torah the, uh, that the original hearers saw as this gorgeous freedom of revelation and grace. If they can turn that into shackles, can we do the same thing with the grace of God? Whew, so quiet. Listen to what Jesus says about freedom. He says to the people who believe in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teaching. Then you'll be set free. I told you I was going to get preachy today. I want you to look at a, at a story that we're really familiar with. But we generally read it for its ending, but I want to focus today on the beginning of it. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, the younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money on wild living. And at that time, his money had run out. And a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. And the man sent him to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he, uh, he was feeding pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. This is the famous prodigal son story, and we generally read it for the beautiful reunion at the end, which honestly I think is why Jesus, what Jesus wants us to focus on. But this week I saw something in the, in the beginning that parallels um, the way we can tend to live today, because this son is given a gift, a charis in the Greek, which is the word gift, but it also is the word that's translated grace. Give me my inheritance. And of course, it's not really his, right? It's, it's not his until his dad dies. Like, for all we know, his dad could get hit with like Job-style curses and there'd be nothing to hand down by the time he dies, you know. That's, that's the nature of inheritance. You don't know how much it is until the person dies. He might double it by the time his dad dies. He might lose everything by the time his dad dies. So it's not the son's yet. You guys ever heard the joke, I'm just out here spending your inheritance. Like, my parents are starting to crack that joke. Esther's parents are starting to crack that joke. It's not funny anymore. Like, it used to be funny. No. Yeah, it's not his yet until his dad passes. But his dad gives it as a gift. I'll, I'll split my fortune and give it to you. And when the son wakes up in the pig pen, he recognizes he's lower than his father's servants. The blessing had become a bondage. He's stuck. And I believe in the grace of God. Don't get me wrong. I bank everything on the grace of God. I'm a grace preacher through and through. I quote Luther all the time, sin boldly, but believe in Jesus more boldly. I believe my righteousness is filthy rags. And the only, the only hope I have of eternal life is in the grace of Jesus Christ. But how many of us take that grace 
as an excuse to dive straight into bondage. Straight into the pig pen. We're given this inheritance, this, this beauty that we didn't earn. And instead of living lives of gratitude and faithful service, we ride our inheritance right into the pig pen. Which leaves us with a dilemma. If the Pharisees were able to take this law and, and, and this strict, faithful living and turn it into bondage, and these people that believed in Jesus can take His grace and turn it into bondage, then how on earth do we thread that needle? How do we, how do we walk that razor's edge? Jesus said we do it by staying faithful to His teaching. And this is where kingdom living comes back into play. At the Last Supper, when Jesus was talking about some of the, uh, taking some of these super familiar Passover elements that everybody uh, knew, and he was using them to explain his calling, he took the cup. And, and it was a very specific cup because it says, after the meal, he took the cup. And so every Jew knew that that was the third cup that had been called the cup of salvation for time out of mind. And he says, Jesus took this cup, and he said, This, this cup you already know, this cup of salvation, is the cup of the new covenant. And this phrase that we're so familiar with, the new covenant, is a really important statement because it, it harkens back to this really obscure prophecy in the Old Testament. There's not a lot of talk in the Old Testament about a new covenant coming. In fact, this, this, this passage in Jeremiah 31 is pretty much it. And it was really uncomfortable because nobody wanted a new covenant. They were holding out for God to kind of fulfill his old covenant. Like, you made a promise of some land. We're no longer in our land Let's not start talking new covenants. We're holding out hope that the old one's going to come back to pass. And so Jesus drops this phrase, new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant. He's basically saying this, what's happening is about that. He pulls this old dusty prophecy off and he says this, this thing nobody wants to talk about in Jeremiah 31, this is what's happening. This new covenant. And here's what that prophecy says. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. The covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions, my rules, deep within them. I'll write them on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they will be my people. They'll not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will already, I will know me already, says the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never remember their sins. So by dropping this phrase, new covenant, Jesus is saying, hey, don't miss this. I'm talking about a specific thing. This is about that. It's about this time when the law, this gift that they had turned into a bondage is no longer that same way. I'll put it inside you. The law of God is this internal motivation rather than this external pressure. And this is where things get fun because Jesus told his disciples over and over again that this change was coming. Something new is coming. In fact, he told them, I have to leave so that this can happen. I have to leave so this change can happen. And Jesus said it was, it was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was going to be sent to dwell inside of us like a river of living water. And he said the Holy Spirit's coming to do a particular thing. 
to do a particular job. He said, when this, the, the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, He will teach you everything and remind you everything I have told you. What did Jeremiah said? I'm going to put my word inside you in your hearts. And how did Jesus say the truth? What the truth would do to us? He said, if you remain faithful to my teachings, the truth will set you free. So let me see if I can kind of pull all this together. Jeremiah tells us there's a day coming when, when God would not be this external pressure leading to bondage, but this internal conversation between God and his people. Then Jesus says that, uh, that this moment, this new covenant is a fulfillment of that passage, that, that time when God's going to put the stuff inside you. Jesus says the way to freedom is to hang on to those teachings. And then he says when the Holy Spirit comes, that will be his job. To help you hang on to those teachings. So God says, I'm going to put it inside you. Jesus says the Holy Spirit is coming to be inside you. And the whole reason is to remind you of these things that you have to stay faithful to so that you can be free. So ultimately, the only way we are free, the only way we avoid bondage whether it's bondage to law or bondage to cheap grace, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us. And how do we respond to this? You know, I opened this story about trying to uh, set up some rules and laws in my marriage. What I was really trying to do is come up with a formula that kept me from actually having to connect with my wife and, and have a real relationship with her that required me getting to know her heart. I wanted rules I knew I could follow rather than understand genuine intimacy. And I think we do that with God sometimes. In the prodigal son story, the, the son went back to his father with a deal in hand. He had rehearsed his lines. Here's what I, I'll say to my father. I'll say, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. Like he had, he had planned it all out. He had a program. He practiced what he was going to say. And like me trying to put rules in my marriage, the son was kept trying to tell the father, here's how we're going to proceed. And the father wasn't having it. He just wanted his son back. Real relationships are never either all law or all grace. Imagine if you tried a relationship based on just rules. Dinner is at 6 o'clock every night when I get home from work. Yeah, except I had a really crappy day today. Why do I care? Dinner's at 6 how long do you think that relationship lasts? Right? But also, who could be in a relationship with somebody who because they know you love them and will forgive them, do whatever they want? You can't have a relationship based on 100% grace either. Any real relationship between two humans is about a whole lot of rules and laws and boundaries and a whole lot of grace. That's the only way relationships work. And the real relationship happens in navigating between those two. And I think our relationship with God is the same. In fact, if you want to know what the, what, what the tension between law and grace looks like for real, we're going to look at Galatians 5. I wish I had time to read the whole chapter, but I don't. So I some highlights. So Christ has truly set us free. Now, make sure that you stay free. Don't get tied up again in the slavery of law. So Paul's talking about how law can become slavery. Christ has set you free from that. Don't go back to the law. And this is all the same chapter, by the way. For if you're trying to make yourself right with God by keeping the law, 
You've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen from God's grace. But we who live in the Spirit eagerly wait to receive by faith the righteousness God has promised us. There's a couple of verses later. For you have been called to live in freedom, my dear brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. You've been set free. Don't go back to the law. You've been set free. Don't serve sin. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. But when you're directed by the Spirit, you're not under the obligation of the law. If you're Spirit-driven, you won't serve your flesh. If you're Spirit-driven, you won't serve the law. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Does that sound like the back and forth nature of a real relationship? That's how we live with real people. We get mad if they, if they break the rules and then we break the rules and we want forgiveness and we're back and forth between grace and, and structure all the time. And that's what it's supposed to sound like because that's what we're offered. A real relationship. I love Paul's conclusion. Since we are living by the Spirit, let's just follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Ultimately, this is the only way to do it right. We're invited into a relationship, not a religion. That relationship is facilitated by the Holy Spirit who is sent to dwell inside of us as a literal, present comfort and connection to God. Not a vague force or a concept, but a real indwelling person of the Trinity, present to be in relationship with you. And if you're not aware of the Spirit's presence in your life, I think you need to start praying for that. So here's how Jesus talked about the Spirit. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you'll find it. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give him a snake instead? Or if you ask for an egg, do you, do you, if he asks for an egg, do you give him a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Ask, seek, knock. We ask for that. We, we quote that one all the time. Jesus used it in the context of asking for the Holy Spirit. He said, he said ask and don't quit asking. Seek and don't quit seeking. You know, knock and don't quit knocking. And, and he was talking specifically about the Spirit. And when we ask for the Holy Spirit, the, the Father will not give us something wonky or weird. So this is the way I'd love to respond to this message as Judy comes up and and gets ready for a final song. Like the prodigal son, we need to run to our father with childlike simplicity and begin to ask this morning for God to fill us up with his spirit. and to, Or to maybe just make us aware of the spirit's presence in our life in a real and tangible way. Like you would expect of every relationship. That you would know where they are and know what's going on with them and and know that they love you. So what I want to do as Judy starts to play is let's just kind of close our eyes for a minute. 
We don't do this enough. I've talked about a lot of things today. We covered a lot of scripture. Maybe let's just take a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Because honestly, if I'm not speaking God's words, it's just eating out of the garbage. We want the Holy Spirit's words. We want want God to speak to our hearts. That's the only way we get something truly nourishing and good for us. So let's just take a minute and ask the Holy Spirit to tell us what we need to know today.